Yo, my taste buds. Let me tell you about Diet Coke. They are shaking things up with a bold new look and four new delicious flavors. Don't worry, the OG Diet Coke still has the same great taste, still as available as ever. But now, listen to what Diet Coke is doing out there. They've added the feisty cherry, a twisted mango, zesty blood orange, pretty good for holiday time. I, it it sound, seems like we might be able to do a zesty blood orange Halloween punch and ginger lime. Ginger lime would be a good one too. All of those have been added to the mix. These flavors are so bold you won't be able to pick a favorite. Don't even bother. Hungry homies, you're going to hear on today's episode a beautiful rendition of our experience with Bill's Mom's Baked Ziti. Producer Kyle was there. Producer Kyle, what were you drinking? Well, it was that ginger lime. and uh, that, It was the, the ginger lime. The ziti and the meatballs. It was just... It was like cleansing almost, it felt. You cleanse the palate with the ginger lime. It's got that nice, bright burst of ginger flavor. When you're going from a meatball over to a ziti and back and forth, you're washing it down a little bit with the ginger lime. This is why producer Kyle is on House of Carbs, friends. Whether you are a longtime fan or just want to try something new, give Diet Coke a taste and you will see what we are talking about. Diet Coke, because I... And producer Kyle can. All my food friends, hungry homies, culinary comrades. We've done it. We're back. Welcome to another episode of House of Cops. Part of the Ringer Podcast. Network. This is the food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people. I am your hungry host, Joe House. My friends, what a show we have for you today. It is not every single week that we bring you a legend in the game. And I, in this instance, it's two legends in the game. Renee Redzepi of the renowned, world-famous, number one restaurant in, in the entire world on planet Earth, Noma in Copenhagen, Denmark, is joined by his colleague and comrade, David Zilber. The two of them co-authored a book on fermentation. Yeah, wait till you hear these two guys talk about the art of fermentation and what they do at Noma. Of course, we're going to have some delicious food news as well. I am joined, as always, by my own uh, hungry homie, Juliet Littman. Hi, Hi. Juliet. I can't wait to listen to this episode. Sounds really good. Renee Redzevi, big get, man. Dig it. Big get, big get. Congrats. Yeah, great, great get for House of Carbs. Yeah. Um, I took a picture with them. We will post it. Um, David and Renee, not the tallest guys. Okay, good to know. It, <laughs> I might they they it's it's kind of like dad and his sons. I'm in the middle and the two and then I have my arms around the two of them. Oh, well, anyone who's seen the photo of of you and Bill and Jacoby at the White House knows that being in the middle is your usual spot. It is my play. <laughs> uh, I will say though, uh, maybe not giants in stature, but giants in the food game. This was a a, a really um, interesting under undersells it. It was like. Not exactly mind blowing, but we we covered a lot of territory. This is a House of Carbs 
where we really got into some science, we got into some theory, uh, and they they want all the hungry homies out there to sort of get this idea of fermentation as a as a flavor building block. Interesting. I, I'm excited yeah. to listen. I, I mean, fermentation. I've got a lot of questions. Like, do they also like talk about like wine? No, this is all in in the nature of food. food. Like, uh, like kimchi. Um, exactly. That's that that's the one that that obviously comes to mind for folks because it's the, you know, it's made a recent appearance. It's kind of um, a, there isn't a kimchi fad. I wouldn't call it, but you know, the the revelation of the flavor that something like kimchi can deliver is a new thing for at least the U.S. palate, I believe. Um, and and I these guys. Uh, in their in the beautiful book and in the conversation, you know, talk about how you can do it all over the place. All right, Juliet, we introduced last week kind of a revamp format where we hash out, you know, delicious food at the beginning of the show because we've been often comparing notes before we jump into the food news, but it gets in the way of the food news itself. Sure. It's kind of our own personal food news. Um, we're calling this best thing I ate this week. Um, and I think we should stick with it. Last week, you gave up some delicious meatballs. You had two different meatball sandwich <laughs> experiences, meatball sub experiences. Somewhat to my own embarrassment, but yes, I did. And by the way, I oh, just want to just want to say I didn't get any free meatballs out of that. Not that's why I brought it up, but I didn't get any. <laughs> we need to we need to tap Kyle's roommate on the shoulder because that's the joint, right? Kyle, come on, get me some meatballs. Let's do it. Get yeah, <laughs> Juliet. When Stars Juliet tomorrow. needs meatballs. Oh my god, tomorrow. Good luck to him. Um, let's talk about you, House. What'd you eat that was so good this week? So, so this week, now I had the the great good fortune uh, being in Los Angeles for the bulk of last week, and we only went out to eat once. I got to finally uh, visit Major Domo. It was uh, every bit as mind blowing as everybody said. It was a real sp- surprise and revelation. Um, because of all of the produce, like, uh, brother Chang, David Chang said, I'm going to come out here and explore what California has to offer. And then lo and behold, he really did it. So we had some incredible diversity of colors and arrays and flavors of, um, produce and stuff. So that was a highlight. And then, uh, Bill Simmons and I were prepared to watch basketball and baseball all night long, Wednesday night, um, and so he convinced his mom to bring over meatballs and sausage uh, and added surprise baked ziti. So all of us, including producer Kyle, come on. How was that? Oh, it was fantastic. I took some home. I came back the next day and there was still some more there. I finished it off. Yeah, that's the nice thing about the Simmons household. Uh, the the meatballs and sausage and ziti is kind of an indulgence. Sure. They, they, they have, there's too much healthy food in that house. <laughs> So uh, they'll like do it for one meal, but if you go back, there's always going to be leftovers of, of delicious, you know, uh, meat and pasta combinations. Isn't that, that was that was my. Isn't that a Bill's mom's secret recipe? Yes, the the meatballs especially. She won't she won't. T- I asked her if she would come on if I could have it for House of Carbs, and she just flatly said no. Wow, not even for you, a lifelong friend almost. <laughs> Exactly. Just a flat out no. Uh, but so all those things were glorious. I want to share a, an unbelievable food experience I had this week. Now, I've had Popeye's fried chicken um, 217,000 times. Um, this was a, 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 a party that I went to. It was in an unexpected place that it showed up. And that's why I want to share this uh, this tale. My 
uh, little guy, eight years old, in second grade. The school that he goes to has this nice tradition of, in the fall every year, convening all the parents without the kids. Nice. And somebody agrees to host. So all the parents can get together and have a little collegiality, a little bon ami, um, with, in the, with the uh, great, helpful addition of alcohol. <laughs> helpful indeed. <laughs> yes. So... These folks that that hosted, uh, in fact, uh, Amy McDonald was on the show in the summer. Small Craft Liquors is her business. They agreed to host at their house, and she made a, a delicious batch of a, of a pomegranate-based tequila drink Ooh. that she kind of invented. Yes. Now, I didn't get there early enough to sample any of it. Uh, I'm sure it was spectacular. I went um, straight for the beer, which was you know, kind of my mode. Saturday night, I did not know until I was there, until the smell greeted me, that what they served as food at this party, in addition to beautiful platters of crudite and salumi and, you know, uh, meats across the board and delicious cheeses and all beautiful vegetables, they had box after box after box of Popeye's fried chicken and coleslaw and biscuits. Such a good move. Just such a good move. Everyone loves that. It's like a crowd pleaser. And it's it's like and it's the epitome of high low. I absolutely love it. In the same way that like um alcohol can be a great neutralizer, eating fried chicken, t- having a great big piece of fried chicken in your face and you're getting your hands greasy and your face greasy, that that really, you know, helps you relate to somebody when when the, when you're when you're uh exchanging views on on uh your children and and the crazy things they're doing whether or not you know w- where in the house they might be laying poops the important thing is to have have something that nu- equal equalizes it and makes everybody feel part of the same mission and uh Popeye's fried chicken mission accomplished I, that's amazing Cause shout out to those hosts that's the most gracious hosting i've ever heard of I say. In fact, I stayed long enough. I'm sure I overstayed my welcome. They were offering to let me take some fried chicken home, but I just oh, felt wow. like that was a bridge too far. Wow. You should have now, done I it. I did stand in the kitchen where the chicken was. My strategy was to um, wait for everybody uh, to have their fill. And, 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 you know, I waited so long that there was no danger whatsoever that there was anybody that would be going back for even thirds. And then I stepped in. And I was in the kitchen for a solid, like, 50 minutes and each time I got a new, each time I, I went for some more pieces, I got a new plate because I didn't want anybody who walked into the kitchen to see the pile of bones on my plate. So I'm not going to say how many plates I had um, <laughs> and how many pieces were on those plates, but uh, it was really, really fortuitous that right next to me was the the small um, garbage receptacle to to just you know so I could just slide right off and it would go right into the can nobody could see, and I got to talk to a lot of people a lot of folks came through the kitchen nice party move, wow I'm I'm really happy for you it sounds like you had a great day or a great time <laughs> I did I'm telling you how can you beat a party with Popeyes <laughs> you just simply can't I guess the only thing could be better is like you know maybe talking to Renee Redzepi. Is that a good transition? Yes. That's, yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't know if they ferm, there's there's an angle to ferment anything having to do with fried. Do you chicken. want to know what I've heard that um, chefs love Popeyes? Like seriously, like it's like regarded as like top of the line fried chicken. Just happens to be low price. I, I mean, it's true. I know David Chang. We've all, we've explicitly compared notes on the love, mutual love of Popeyes. Yeah, yeah. So I, well, I'm sure Renee's on board. 
I didn't get a chance to ask Renee or David. I'm gonna actually they're they're gonna be in DC this week. Maybe I'll 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 suggest I'll send them a note saying make sure you get to Popeyes while you're here. <laughs> local delicacy, Popeyes. <laughs> it's a local delicacy. Exactly. All right, culinary comrades, before we get to Renee and David, I want to share with you a quick word from our friends at Le Creuset. You know from the show, chefs are coming on and they're talking about sourcing the very best quality ingredients and knowing their suppliers. But using the right cookware and tools is just as important. You will hear from Renee and David this very point. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories they create and the style the Le Creuset pieces express. They were the first to introduce color to the kitchen, a pioneer in the enameled cast iron, all cast iron, still made in France. If you look look online or you pull up a catalog and look at Le Creuset, right next to it says, made in France. Since 1925, there's an original French foundry. Each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsmen's hands. This is original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty. I already have, for my eight-year-old, the five-and-a-half-quart Dutch oven. He's going to get it. I'm going to convey that. It's part of my estate, for Christ's sakes. Bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. The five and a half quart Dutch oven is being put to use. The temperature has changed here on the East Coast because there are actual seasons here on the East Coast. I've already made my favorite for the season, the chicken curry. I'm now working on a beef stew and I had this idea for a delicious umami element and I, I, I think the secret may sit in anchovy paste. Yep, it's going in there. Beef stew, this beautiful red Dutch oven. Check out the new color from Le Creuset and I might have to check this out. They just launched it in September. It's indigo. It's a true, true blue inspired by the iconic natural dye. It's rich, deep hue of Le Creuset indigo, universally authentic, bold, neutral in style and cultures around the world. You can get free shipping on that piece. Get yourself a giant six-quart, eight-quart, nine-quart Dutch oven and start cooking because it's fall. LeCrusay.com slash carbs with promo code carbs. Free shipping. L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash carbs and enter promo code carbs and you get that piece to your house for free. All right, my taste buds, as you know, we've been very fortunate on House of Carbs to get incredibly interesting and successful folks from a whole variety of, of, of walks of life. But it is not every day, my hungry homies, that we sit down with a couple gentlemen associated with the number one restaurant in the world over many of the, 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 the past years, of, of, of the past 15 years or so. I mean, I can go through the accolades They've been in the top 50 since 2006, four of the past five years, number one in the world. There's a beautiful new book that these two gentlemen authored 
together. I'm sitting today in Santa Monica, California, looking at the ocean. I'm here with Rene Redzepi and David Zilber of Noma in Copenhagen, Denmark. My friends, welcome to House of Cards. Hi, guys. Hey. <laughs> How are you? Real well. Real well. So Thank look, you. The occasion here today is to talk about your book. And I know you're, you're, you're working the gauntlet. The book, My Hungry Homies, The Noma Guide to Fermentation. Mm -hmm. When uh, the opportunity showed up on our radar, we, we saw that the, the book was out. You guys were out doing this world tour. And uh, we just had to invite ourselves in to get an opportunity to chat with you. Um, Renee's uh, uh, reputation and his association with Noma is, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff of legend. And we're going to get into some of the legend. Um, and, and, and David is kind of a, a recent arrival to, to Noma. I asked David for um, his, his actual title. He told me he is the director of, of fermentation. I think it's okay to say uh, that that's also known as the king of funk. I mean, is that right? He is the Noma king of funk. That's true. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, I got I got my hands in some uh, some potent brews. Yeah, so I, say. I I want to hear from both of you um, some origin story um, kind of stuff. But let's start with kind of how the two of you came together, so that we're kind of sitting here in this moment right now. Yeah, well, uh, I'll I'll say that because I came to Renee. Yeah, uh, he didn't he didn't come to me. Um, but Noma, if you're a chef, is, before I ever arrived there, it is one of these places that is like a shining beacon in the sky of inspiration. Um, there, there wasn't a cook that I'd worked with in Canada or the U.S. Um, that didn't know of this restaurant and know that it was pushing boundaries and know that it was trying to do things that other people didn't. And uh, when I was finishing up at my last job, and that was in 2014, I just I knew I had to be, I had to, to, to up the ante and find somewhere better to work with, to challenge myself. And I sent them a letter and, and they picked me up. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working in the kitchen for about a year before I think maybe Renee and, and some of the higher-ups saw a spark in me um, and decided to move me over to the lab to, to, to do my thing over there. So, yeah, and we did see a spark in him because, you know, Dave is different. He's different to other cooks. He was reading books in the break. People were, you know, updating their Instagram and Dave was sitting with a thick book taking in quantum physics or <laughs> reading about, you know, submarine life and antipods and books on Jared Diamond and anthropology and stuff like that. And we quickly realized, okay, this is more than just, you know, chopping and uh, making sauce. There's more to this person. So uh, Dave, um, I think, kind of glossed over. He, he, he made it sound like he just sent you a letter, sent Noma a letter, and that was all that it took for, for him to, to become part of, of the enterprise. Is, is that all that it took? Well, it was a, it was a long letter. And it, was a, <laughs> it, was not just, it was not just a short letter. It was a long letter explaining a lot of things, you know, kind of saying, you want me, in a way. Uh -huh. uh, which, uh, but very, very articulately done, you know. But, you know, we get so many letters. We probably have around 1,000 applicants a month yes. uh, wanting to get in. And for some reason, he just... He nailed that letter, and then he came to work at the restaurant for a trial, and and that's when the well, that's when we need to see that people can can actually do the work. You yes. know, a letter is one thing. You know, you'd be able a lot of people be able to write some nice words together, but seeing Dave work first more uh, first of all was was made the difference. And now 
the reason why he became the head of fermentation, which is probably one of the most important roles of anyone in our uh, organization, was because of his complete uh, nerdiness yeah. uh, and curiosity. Uh huh. So that that's um, exactly the segue, uh, perfect segue into what I wanted to sort of a- ask you about, and and really, uh, I'm going to say set the table, even though it's a bad pun. <laughs> um, <laughs> For, for, you know, kind of this, this collaboration that the two of you have entered into um, with the book. Uh, and I want to go all the way back to kind of the origin story of Noma mm-hmm. and, and your own curiosity, your own sort of intellectual passion for imagining food in a, in a different way, which I think has to do with your background yeah. um, a little bit. Uh, can we talk for a couple minutes sure. just about how you got to, to Noma? Yeah. So I uh, was, uh, well, I started cooking when I was 15. I uh, left ninth grade in kind of dishonor um, and I needed something to do and I ended up cooking, which was at that time very common for people leaving school in dishonor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so ten year, fast forward 10 years, I traveled the world, worked at the best restaurants and I had an opportunity to open this place in a, in a cold, windblown corner of Copenhagen. And we decided to do something with local foods, not knowing what that really entailed. And we're in Scandinavia, cold climate region. And so we started uh, investigating. We discovered the wilderness. We became known as the foraging restaurant. Right. That was really the, the first stepping stone to our success. From that moment on, we needed to preserve these ingredients. And then we started fermenting. And now we're the foraging and fermenting restaurant. <laughs> yeah, the, the double F. The, yeah, and, then, yeah. and then 15 years on now, we've become a restaurant in which, you know, that, that has like, 10,000 people on the wait list on a Friday night for the, for the 40 seats. Uh, Pretty good. And, um, and we become a restaurant that can have so much opportunity. And, and considering that we came from um, honestly nothing, just seven people employed, six gas burners, myself, the story, uh, the son of a Muslim immigrant to Denmark, not having grown up on Scandinavian food, now we're known for Scandinavian or the Nordic foods. Uh, and we're sitting here in Santa Monica, overlooking the ocean, talking about fermentation on a world tour with one of my uh, co-workers. You know, it's it's really been incredible for us the past 15 years. Yeah, well, I have to tell you, I appreciate the opportunity to be sitting here with the two of mm-hmm. you under those circumstances. Um, you kind of glossed over, you you know, you, you left school and started cooking. And then I worked at, at some of the best restaurants over a 10-year span. And then so you had a, a natural aptitude. For cooking, was there a tradition in your household that you got to participate in that led to that? Yeah, there there were a tradition. I mean, I used to grow up in a household where, where cooking was uh, completely common. I mean, when we were in back then the, the former Yugoslavia, there were there were no refrigerators. It sounds crazy. People almost don't believe me when I say it. Yeah, you're it. you're younger than I am. I'm we're 40 not, years old. Yeah, we're not talking about very long ago. No, but there were no refrigerators. If you wanted milk, somebody milked a cow. Uh, that's how I grew up. Cooking happened on a daily basis, several times a day, and we we ate predominantly vegetables. Meat would be a rare treat. Ah. One of the favorite things I, I used to love was a was a roast chicken, mm-hmm. and we'd watch actually uh, from the beginning of the process would be catching the chicken, chopping the head off. We would love uh, the kids to for our aunt to release the chicken as it was running around headless, and we would try to catch it, <laughs> blood squirting out and all. I have these vivid uh, uh, memories. Yeah. And then we'd watch it being plucked, put into the oven, roasted in the wood-fired oven with a, sh- a pan of rice underneath. Oh, my. All, taking in all the drippings yes. from the chicken. And that memory of the chicken coming out, 
golden and the first crackling of somebody tearing a leg off and the steam that are, that comes up i mean those are the memories i have and 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 i i used to hate those old French chefs that, you know, when they were to explain their story with food, it was always falling. I watched my grandmothers and and a few years back I realized, wow, that's my own story, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Your childhood actually follows you. Yeah. It does matter how you grow up. So ha- food has always been in your life a hands-on experience, and so the foraging in Scandinavia, and I, I, I'm interested in, in your take on this. It sounds like to me was, you know, learning what was uh, available, what was sort of um, indigenous to that, that uh, you know, feeding people in that climate and experience, the only way to, to kind of discover that properly from, from your view of the world is with your own two hands. Absolutely. Is that right? It was. I mean, at first when we opened, it was winter uh, in 2003. I was 25 years old. It was no- November 23rd. Everything was cold. There was nothing growing. And here we were trying to do local foods. And I had beets and onions to cook with. <laughs> and uh, and looking back at it, it changes because uh, it forced me to read books that I never thought I'd read as a cook. Yes. Nobody ever told me about the wilderness, about seasonality. And then as soon as uh, spring struck, we were out in our Wellingtons, you know, out in nature, trying to pick every patch of green uh, and uh, tasting. And we discovered things that nobody had ever told us uh, existed in our part of the world. I mean, 15 years ago when we opened... The idea of cilantro, which here in America is completely common, but that was such an exotic thing. Huh. It was like, you can't even begin to imagine that, right, when you, we talk about it today. But it was so exotic. People had tasted it on, on a journey to Thailand or maybe somebody had gone to Mexico and had it there. And we were tasting these ingredients, tasting like cilantro, but they were growing on the beaches through seaweeds. And they looked like chives. We were huh. tasting ants that tasted like oranges. You know, or ants that tasted like uh, lemons. We were tasting all these roots that had like flavors of cinnamon and so on. And flavors that to us were some of the most exotic things that we could possibly have. And they were right here in front of us. It was a revelation. Yeah. And, and it's, it, you know, fueled everything after that. It was like, that's it. So, David, you um, obviously were familiar with this uh, story and the way that, that um, Renee and his cohorts were able to kind of build Noma yeah. into this thing. What, what about your own um, approach to, to food, to eating, um, resonated with you where you sat down and, and had the sort of, it sounds like you, you, it was a passion pouring onto the paper uh, to write a letter that would, that would you know, capture the interest and have, make them say, we got to get this guy over here here. What, what about that um, intellectual curiosity appealed to you? It, yeah, Noma, Noma was posing and answering questions that other people weren't thinking of. Uh-huh. And I mean, you know, as a cook, you, you can like watch a couple videos on YouTube and you had the last two books to refer to. Uh, and it seemed so foreign. You know, it, it was it. I, I always thought that Noma was, I mean, you go eat at Noma. It's a very beautiful restaurant, Danish design very warming atmosphere but I always thought it was super punk rock yeah because it always felt like a response to a world that was very set in its ways in, in terms of what finding of what fine dining was or what a really you know lavish meal was supposed to be and then you went to Noma and it was not that I don't want to say it was the opposite of that I don't want to say it was cheap food but it was considerations of things that other people weren't considering and and that that got to me you know, and um, you, you you would hear about 
their use of fermentation or wild foods, you know, five, six, seven years ago, but you didn't really understand it. And you can't really understand it until you're in that kitchen doing it. You can't really like perceive these flavors. We can describe them, but until you're sitting in that chair, putting it in your mouth. But you, you weren't um, sitting in that kitchen when you wrote the letter. No. You, no, but I had you been there before. I'd, I'd never. No, you'd never been there. I'd never. But it was just you. You. You were able. God bless the internet uh, <laughs> and the age that we live in. The democratization of, of food and, and yeah. food ways. Yeah. We were able to. You know, this this is resonating with me. Yeah. This is so, this is something that I think I could. I want to be a part of. Definitely. Right. And, and I think that if I tried to do anything with that letter, it was it was to show the the head chef or, or Renee or whoever's desk it was going to come across mm. that. I understood something about what they were doing, maybe on a level that other cooks didn't. You know, I, I definitely remember one line where I say, you know, I'm, I'm the nerdy cook in the kitchen. I'm the one who's explaining to the apprentice why a wild strawberry tastes different from a farmed one. And th that just comes from the books I read. I'm interested in the evolutionary history of things, you know, whether that's how cuisines developed over the past hundred years or, or how... You know, we have uh, we have chickens in uh, at KFC. Well, and part you know, of your own experience, you were born and raised in Canada, right? Yeah, in yeah. In, in Toronto or around, in, in Toronto, uh, born yeah, and raised. Yeah, great city. So uh, you had available to you, um, you know, a, a, an array of uh, ingredients and and cuisines and yeah. traditions because of you know the the incredible diversity of Toronto. Um, and the melting pot, the true melting pot um, that Toronto ha ha has become that clearly informed, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I grew up with uh, my, my core crew of friends. You know, I'm uh, a mix myself. My, my father's a Polish Jew and my mom's from the Caribbean. So I had two very different um, foods on the table at any given time for, mm -hmm. for holidays or throughout the week. Uh, one of my best friends was from Taiwan, the other one from Romania, the other one from Trinidad. So... You got, you got all these different cultures and you just grew up thinking it was normal. You grew up thinking that the entire world on a plate was normal. Um, and yeah, it, it makes for a, a rich existence. Uh -huh. um, and it, it just kind of pushes your curiosity further because you just keep saying what else is out there. Well, it clearly translated into, you know, creating this opportunity um, to come and work with, with, you know, Renee and his team in Copenhagen. How, how long ago was that? When did you arrive? Uh, I got to Copenhagen uh, early 2014, so I've been there almost five years. Okay, now. so yeah. so five years. So um, it's it's one thing to arrive and be in the kitchen at a place like uh, Noma and working with Renee and his team. Yeah. How do you go from from you know uh, young guy from Toronto with a passion to the king of funk? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I'll say that. Maybe my answers to some very menial questions in the kitchen were smarter than they needed to be. Huh. Um, I, I remember one particular anecdote. I, I was on the barbecue section. I was cooking the bone marrow. And I was, you know, I was proud of myself. I was doing a really good job at it. You know, the head of the test kitchen had would come up with the recipe, showed me how to do it. And all of a sudden, the bone marrow was coming out of the Jasper, the, the charcoal oven, looking like creme brulee. And everyone was like, oh, good job, Dave. I'm like... Yeah, I'm doing a good job at Noma. And then I remember that that same head of the test kitchen comes out. He's like, how come you're, how are you getting it so good? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, the molecular structure of fat is layers of uh, cellular tissue with little pockets of water in. If you try it out, then, and then it was way, you know, it was, he was not expecting he that answer. He was not answer. expecting that answer. And uh, I, I think people caught wind of that. So 
I, I will say that, you know, I, I read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. um, an early chef told me that the best way to increase your pay in this industry is to read, ah, to educate yourself. What great advice. It, it was. And it's, it's true advice um, in any field. You know, you, you have to have a critical eye. You have to be discerning. There's a lot of BS out there. Uh, but if you have a good BS detector, then you can actually spend a lot of time, you know, figuring things out about the world. Um, and I think that that knack, that aptitude is maybe what uh, the team in the fermentation lab uh, and Renee saw at the time. Uh, and then I was quickly transplanted. So w when you arrived, there, the f fermentation lab was already a thing. It was built the same year as I got there. Oh, good yeah. timing. Yeah. So yeah. to talk about the fermentation we, lab, what, what, what are we talking about here? Well, it is, um, I mean, we, uh, we, were, we used to have this one kitchen, and everything happened in the kitchen in between the piles of prep work. We'd uh, sort of have a, a little corner if we had time to experiment a bit. And at a certain point, we told ourselves, okay, this fermentation thing here, this is like us building or making Legos for our kitchen. This is, you know, before fermentation, I used to say that we had like a handful of Legos to build our cuisine with. With fermentation, suddenly we're having a basket full of things to play around with. And at a certain point, we decided, let's take the leap and simply remove the process of fermentation from the kitchen and make it its own entity. Huh. And so we built a separate kitchen for this and hired a separate team only focused on mold, yeast, and bacteria and what that does to foods. And uh, we it hired... It sounds a, like a science lab. It is a science lab. We, yeah. had, a, we had an intern from Stanford, yeah. a PhD uh, student. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she said, this, uh, this here is better equipped than my uh, uh, space. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean this. I know uh, uh, it's going to sound funny. How did you uh, experiment without killing yourselves? Yeah. I mean, we were very sensitive of that, of course, because as you're dealing with this stuff, one thing is to read about how you do kimchi or one of these more simpler uh, processes. But uh, when you actually dabble into uh, new uh, fields, uh, we hired a, a food chemist that worked with us. Ah. So we had a full-time doctor of food chemistry. Her name was Ariel Johnson, and she was there for the first years to help us figure out how do we actually structure this? Mm -hmm. How do we set up a lab like this that is going to work with food? How do we give ourselves the knowledge to understand what's going on? Sure. And that made a huge difference. Huge, huge. That laid the groundworks for how we work today. I mean, but still, we, we got to stay curious all the time. Dave, he reads all the time and we are on top of things. I mean, when we have health inspectors actually come to the restaurant, they, they look at the papers we're showing them and they don't even know... You know, they are like, what's going on? Okay, you, you got it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, if you're, if you're pushing a field forward, yes. then, then you have to put in the due diligence to, to make sure that it's, that it's right. Um, and we are doing things that other restaurants aren't. And so, you know, you know I take it upon myself to, to make sure that we, we keep records and that we're, if we're looking into something new, that we're looking into all the ways it can go wrong. Uh, and you inform yourself and you educate yourself. And that's something I also uh, try, to, try to parlay in the book. Uh -huh. It was a very thick chapter, uh, a very thick section on, um, you know, health and safety. And you spend as much time looking at the microbes that are responsible for making beer and, and kimchi and sauerkraut as you do uh, all the microbes that would make it go wrong. Yep. So you can at least, you know, have a, a clear picture of uh, everything that's in play. Now, uh, I, I have about 
two dozen questions <laughs> to follow up on that because um, I have a kid who is allergic to a whole bunch of foods and it is a single kind of generation experience here in the United mm -hmm. States where, uh, speaking of microbes, something happened to our guts here in the United States. Something happened in the food supply here yeah. where I grew up with, you know, uh, uh, it was very uncommon for, for uh, my my folks in my age group to have any kind of mm -hmm. illnesses or, or issues related to food yeah. and the commonality of it now um, among uh, kids my son's age and, and, and throughout his school mm -hmm. I'm 100% certain is related to the science of this uh, and what I'm hoping is that um, you're going to tell me in five years you will have the food allergy thing solved because <laughs> you're in the lab every day. Uh, I know I'm, I'm being half facetious. But. No, but it's, I, I think it is a cultural approach that maybe we've gotten away from, uh, you know, the, the things that made us. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of doctors will say that, you know, kids not playing around in the dirt, kids being raised in households that are too clean where everything is antiseptic. Um, you, you know, this war on germs really kind of skewed public perception of what these microbes actually do. The vast majority of them, the vast, vast majority of microbes on Earth are absolutely harmless to human existence. There are more beneficial microbes on your kitchen counter than harmful ones. But I as well grew up with, you know, Lysol wipes and Mr. Clean this and, you know, uh, disinfectant that. Um, and the lack of stressors in your environment can often kind of trick your immune system into being underprepared for the world and it can mistake very common, uh, normally harmless foods for threats. And that's, that's what this whole um, epidemic of allergies has become, uh -huh. um, is, uh, in my opinion, kids being raised in, in too clinical an environment, too much processing of food, too much sterilization. You go back 100, 200 years, food was food. Right. You know, it was made wherever it was, outside, in kitchens, without refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And yes, like Renee's experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you know, we have uh, vanquished a lot of actual harmful diseases in recent history. Right. But at the same time, making foods yourself, you know, fermenting things yourself gives your body uh, the things it needs to be actually properly adjusted to its environment, I think. So I want to talk about how the two of you came to collaborate um, on the book and where the sort of idea of a book um, in the first place came from. But I, I think um, starting point wise, is, it is, you know, as with many things in life, um, as much luck as anything that you happen to arrive at Noma at the same time as Noma is building out this fermentation lab. And did, did you have uh, an, an interest and curiosity in fermentation that led you into this direction? As, or? as much as any other cook, I think a lot of the chefs at Noma um, were like, oh, what is this? This is a powerful tool. And all the chefs there yeah. are, are hungry and curious and want to try things out and want to explore the world. You know, um, that's just the, the, that Noma requires that of its staff. Uh -huh. you, you can't thrive in that environment unless you want to say, how else can this be done? Even if it's just your daily prep of chopping squash or peeling it, you're always asking that question to make it better. Um, and you got when, when I got to Noma, the ferments were made by the team who just built their lab and just handed it into the kitchen. And it did kind of feel like this ivory tower. Oh. That, that, that distribution, that sharing of knowledge hadn't really taken hold in the restaurant yet. Because to their defense, they were figuring it out themselves. Sure. Um, and it's hard to teach people as you're doing it at the same time. 
Um, but speaking of teaching people, where'd the idea of the book come from? Well, the idea of the book was, uh, I don't know, it was just this moment. We were planning to do some sort of book. Um, people were curious to see what was going on in, with Noma. Mm -hmm. And um, at one point I thought to myself, listen, we're going to do a new book. We've already published two. But nobody can cook from those other two. <laughs> right. We need to do something where, that, where we can actually inspire people. And now, what is it that we do that makes us special? What is it that makes Noma Noma? Yes. And how can we translate that into something that people can, can uh, take advantage of in their homes? And that was clear that it's fermentation. And I w went into the fermentation bunker or the lab and I said, we're doing a book. That's kind of how it was. And, and the idea of this book is that you can actually use it. And, and you know what? I happen to believe a lot in the idea of fermentation. I think if people start doing this or even just start using what's already uh, available in markets for, uh, that, that are fermented foods, cooking will become easier and cooking will become better. I don't have a shadow of doubt uh, in that because what has driven our success over the past many years and that flavor thing that people think, wow, that's really Noma. And you can't see it because it's a drop here and a drop there or a smear of paste into something that's disguised. That comes from our fermentation bunker. All these flavors is what makes the difference. And I think, and I don't think I, I know that when people start doing it, it will make cooking more fun and more easy. And then with some ferments, there is that added bonus that uh, you talk about. What does it do to you? Mm -hmm. Is it good for you? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and some of them they can be quite beneficial uh, to your daily life. So um, I have the book. It's absolutely beautiful, um, which is clearly by design. You wanted to uh, make, and and I think it's kind of a natural thing. You, you didn't have to work very hard at it to have the food, you know, and and, and the um, the end results of these things come out looking so spectacular. Um, what what is like the uh, economic uh, framework in which fermentation kind of operates? Like, I, I it doesn't strike me as necessarily very um, expensive. It's just you have to be patient. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an investment in time, and it's it's a lesson in patience. Okay. Um, I joke that uh, the actual grunt work of uh, fermenting food is really just kind of a bit of a pain in the behind. It's just chopping, boiling, mixing. And then a lot of waiting, but uh, and and Renee often says that fermentation is the least Instagrammable food stuff you could uh, you could probably <laughs> oh, snap yeah. with your phone. You know, I mean, you have fresh ingredients, and then you mix them, and you do something to them, and then six months later, it's like brown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um, delicious brown, the most very, incredible that's, brown. That's point. it. That's, that's it. The that's the point. The aha moment, the the moment of delight and elation that comes from making these things, happens when you put in that very bland tasting paste into a jar, and you know, two three months later, took off the lid and tasted something that was otherworldly. That transformation is what is is what. Uh, to me, the investment should be about, you know, you talk about economics, but it's, it's like a yeah. soulful investment. That's it. It's analog. It's an analog thing. It's like I would uh, compare it to, even though you can't do that today, I would compare it to going to the record store like I used to when I was, uh, you know, 12 years old. And I would stand there for hours looking at records and I would save up and I would just wait and save and save. And then 
three months later, I had the money to buy that record. Yeah. Uh, and I had probably stared at it and touched it like 300 times. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's uh, to me what fermentation is today. And and you mentioned um, that the sort of Lego concept, uh, which I think is, is I'm hearing and processing this kind of a building block ki- kind of concept. Um, has it been your experience, and, and I, you know, the, the book is, is, is kind of exporting this, um, that this can go across cu- cuisines, across you know, uh, um, every, every kind of uh, food opportunity? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. I mean, what, there are traditions of fermentation in the Nordics, in mm. Scandinavia. Um, and they, they also fit into some very you know, uh, particular holes. Now, obviously, this book is filled with a lot more than just rye bread and pickled herring right? and, and cucumber pickles. Um, it would have been a very short book otherwise <laughs> if it was just Nordic fermentation. Uh, and what Noma's always been good at is, you know, yes, we're a, a, a Nordic restaurant that helped define a region, but we always take inspiration from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look in the kitchen, there's 30 nationalities of people all driving towards the same goal, all bringing something uh, of their own past history to, to that restaurant. Uh, and looking abroad, looking to the storied culture of fermentation in Japan or India or Africa or France or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But then putting that through our own philosophies, you know, what grows here, it, it's, a, it's applicable all over the world. Mm-hmm. You could take anything, any recipe from the book and just ask yourself, what grows where I am and put it through the same process and come up with something new. And that's that's the most fascinating part. It is, it is this this biological technology that has grown up with humans for millennia, and only now are we realizing like it, its true potential and how universal it is, um, and how it can be translated into into new into a new story each time. Well, I, I know that for the two of you, um, the next few weeks, it's going to be uh, a, a, a grueling tour <laughs> of these fine United States. Um, but uh, the, what, what you just described, David, is, is something that we would love to hear. We want to learn. We, we in the, the, the United States want to uh, experience, I am in my place. How am I going to take this concept, this innovation, and translate it into my own food experience? So uh, thank you guys <laughs> for, thank you. for thank coming you. over and doing this. And thank you very much for joining us here on House of Cards. Hungry homies, you know what's not smart? Rooting for the Dallas Cowboys, especially when their long snapper on the game-tying field goal is taking the football and he's moving it all around, and it has the effect of inducing the defensive line to jump across. That's the penalty on the offense. The snapper, you aren't supposed to play. be playing dance contests with the football, my brother. That's a penalty on you. Not smart. Game loser. I am not displeased with that result because I'm a fan of the Washington Deadskins. But you know what is smart? Get yourself over to ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs to hire the right person. Maybe a replacement long snapper for the Dallas Cowboys. Jerry Jones, I hope you're listening. ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. 
a powerful matching technology that scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you're getting qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. A rating that's coming from hiring sites with over 1,000 of reviews right now. House of Carbs listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. C-A-R-B-S, ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, hungry homies, it is now time for food news yo juliet i'm back here we are we've set aside a lot a lot plenty of time for stories this week yeah i got some hot stories for you one that should be cold but is hot and it's about vodka are you ready i'm listening this is from business insider and it's truly scandalous the headline is here's why you should never put vodka in the freezer according to the creator of gray goose This is wild. Business Insider recently spoke to Grey Goose vodka creator, Francois Thibault, um, who shared some spirits wisdom. He said that one of the biggest mistakes people make is putting their vodka in the freezer. It may seem like an appealing idea to keep your vodka ice cold as thanks to its ethanol content, it won't freeze to a solid block unless the temperatures hit negative 27 degrees Celsius, which is, as we know, way colder Fahrenheit. If the vodka you're drinking is cheap and low quality, then keeping at such low temperatures will hide any aggressive burning notes. However, premium vodkas like Grey Goose should be naturally soft and not aggressive, which means that you'll actually be hiding the more sophisticated aromas and flavors when storing it at a really low temperature. The best temperature for Grey Goose is 0 to 4 degrees Celsius, which is the temperature of a slight dilution with ice in a mixing glass. He added that at room temperature, even Grey Goose vodka would be a little aggressive. Basically, putting your vodka in the freezer will subdue any flavors within the liquid, which is great if your vodka is cheap and unrefined, but not so much if you've bought something nice. So, House, have I convinced you? Will you be taking your vodka out of the freezer? No, absolutely not. <laughs> this is this is crazy talk. This is the uh, well. I, I don't want to besmirch uh, the good man. I don't know him. We've never met, but this feels to me like a it's a it's a half turn too precious, right? Like, yeah. Uh, I enjoy vodka very very much and have been enjoying it for a long time. And I've had a lot of different uh, uh, brands, a variety. I'm I'm personally partial to the Kettle One, um, but you know the you get the flavor profile from all of them at basically all the temperatures. Yeah, he's really talking about you know the very first sip that comes off. But I like a vodka martini. And I want that thing served as cold as possible because of the overall experience of it. I want the smell. I want the uh, the the bouquet, so to speak. And I want the glass to feel in my hands nice and, and, and chilled. That's part of the experience of, of a great martini. In fact, I had an unbelievable martini that we'll be able to talk about on next week's House oh. of Carbs. We were in Los Angeles. We went to a bar called Employees Only, and I had an all-time martini there 
he it wasn't served at zero degrees Celsius. And the alcohol was served absolutely not frozen because you can't you can't get you can't it far enough. It, yeah. But it was a it was exactly the level of chill that I was after. Whoever wants their beverage should be like room temperature. I don't even like a hot toddy. I don't love a mul- a mulled wine. I don't love a, a hard cider that's warm. I like a cold. I, in general, alcohol should be drinking cold. I, I'm sorry, it's just the way it goes. Unless you're like in the olden times and using it as some kind of um, uh, curative, but like give it give it to me cold. Also. Most people aren't buying Grey Goose. I'm sorry. It's like a luxury vodka for a reason. So, you know, put it put it in your freezer. One thing this did remind me of is did you have you ever tried putting um like a low a low grade vodka through a Brita filter? No. Have you ever heard of that? No, but I Kyle, love like, it. Kyle, have you heard of that? No. You haven't? No. This was a thing when I was a youngster where like you would buy like a really cheap vodka and to make it taste less bad, you would filter it one more time yourself. So you'd put it through a Brita. That's kind of genius. <laughs> did it work? Um, I recall thinking that it did, but like it probably didn't. You just like convinced it was like a placebo f- filter effect. <laughs> this is If we had thought of this before I came out last week, we could have we done it live. It. I know. Maybe be... that's a good like live Instagram video one time. Next time we're together, we or, can try it. Right. I mean, that's a whole <laughs> new line. House of Carbs experiments. It's true. And, it, and it's like only it, the House of Carbs experiments would only be things like you can easily accomplish in your home. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the fermentation that sure. we just listened to David and Renee describe. But that's one with patience, with care. You want to be uh, careful. Um, everything needs to be sort of, you know. Lined up, a lot of preparation, a lot of patience. That's probably not our, a part of House of Carbs experiments. Right. That's not for me. I'm like, basically, how lazy can I be? And then I go with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next story. Another hot topic. We love to talk about vodka on this podcast, but like in general, vodkas, I mean, in general, avocados are a very popular food. And this is a story from your local Washington Post. And the headline says, sorry, vegans, if you don't eat honey, avocados might be off limits, too. The story says, vegans eschew not only products made from animals, such as bacon and leather, but also products made by animals, the most obvious examples being milk and butter. For some vegans, this extends to honey because it's produced from the labor of bees. Honey-avoiding vegans believe that exploiting the labor of bees and then harvesting their energy source is immoral, and they point out that large-scale beekeeping operations can harm or kill bees. So why are avocados problematic? As the website The Conversation and the British quiz show QI points out, some avocados and almonds are produced by the work of bees, too. Honeybees pollinate many of our favorite fruits and vegetables, but in much of the United States, there are not enough bees to do this job naturally efficiently or efficiently. So farmers employ a practice called migratory beekeeping. They truck hives into their fields where the bees live for short periods to pollinate the crops during the plant's most fertile window. And an in-depth article from Scientific American outlines just how important this practice is to farming and what effect it has on our ecosystem. The magazine estimated that without migratory beekeeping, the United States would lose one-third of its crops. The bee situation is like a whole other story in this country. I mean, I think many people are aware that we're at risk of losing bees, which would be a disaster. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it would affect uh, so large segments of our produce uh, <laughs> yeah. and fruit uh, production here. Yeah, and just the way that we like we live in America. Um, and so here's what the debate hasn't mentioned: avocados and almonds aren't the only crops that are pollinated in this manner. 
Migratory beekeeping is a slippery slope that, for those who wish to avoid it, could change the scope of veganism. So this is like actually a pretty... This is a long, in-depth article that I highly recommend you read. It's from the voraciously part of the Washington Post. And again, the headlines, you could easily Google it, is, Sorry, vegans, if you don't eat honey, avocados might be off limits, too. Google it, because it really is fascinating. There's so many ramifications of of large-scale farming. Like, basically, farming, industrial farming is so problematic, like, for vegans, for the animals, for on so many levels and I shouldn't necessarily say problematic but so complex that when you really dig into it there are so many ethical questions that reply that apply not just to vegans but just to like people who want to eat ethically and humanely and it's very it's very complicated it's an interesting article yeah I think uh something that jumped off the page at me um and and you know kind of resonated was the idea here articulated by the folks at PETA, which is, you know, veganism isn't about dogma for dogma's sake. It's about making choices that bring about, you know, change. And yes. it's supposed to be like, you know, positive change. And so folks making the decision to pursue veganism for environmental reasons, for moral reasons having to do with, uh, you know, the way our food supply uh, is is pre- prepared and produced and and you know the role of animals and animal life in that um it it's for all the reasons you just mentioned complicated and complicating because it's really hard to parse honey is is kind of an easy thing if you are so inclined to make that choice because it's a product that that's made by bees for bees right yes uh it's and you so can, delicious though <laughs> You can't get that far away from the the flavor profile. Now, I I am I like honey and I don't have my own my, myself like a a real challenge with, you know, uh the migratory beekeeping uh food, you know, f- f- foods produced through that process. Um I mean, I eat meat for Christ's sake, so Me too. Uh but do I, I do think that that you're right. Uh <laughs> It, that the article was cool because of um, sort of giving you perspective on all of the the uh, ways this can go. Yeah, it's it really is fascinating. I mean, um, just the whole concept of like pollination being endangered is a terrifying, and b just so it's such like a simple process that is a, a essential for so many foods that are just a staple of many people's diets. It's really it's fascinating. It's really interesting stuff. I highly recommend this article. Yeah. I love avocados and I'm going to keep eating them. I love avocados. I love honey. I truly love honey. I had a tea with honey on Friday. I love tea. I usually don't put honey in it though. And it was just so good. Honey is just fantastic. (laughs) It is a nice luxe. So you can really dress up a a cup of tea if you have like a a, a nice, you know, um, do you have a particular flavor or do you just like it straight down the middle? My tea? Or my honey. No, your your honey. Oh, you know, the just, honey can have a lot of different flavors. I know. I don't like a hot honey, just straight down the middle. Give okay, me give I me sweetness. It. Give me sweetness. One of my daily struggles is like how to have as much of the sweetness as I crave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking of sweet, one more story. This is about Buffalo Wild Wings. And it's from USA Today. It's the headline says, love pumpkin spice. What about on your chicken wings? The seasonal flavor shows up on lattes, cookies, pies, and many other treats once summer is over. Now get ready to taste them on chicken wings. Buffalo Wild Wings is giving it a shot after introducing a barbecue pumpkin ale sauce, which combines, which 
company officials said mixes ales, barbecue flavor, and pumpkin spice. The sauce was introduced earlier this month and will be available for a limited time, according to the company's website. It joins more than 20 sauces and rubs available at the restaurant. House. This has gone too far. I love a pumpkin yeah. spice. I love a pumpkin muffin. I love a pumpkin bread. I live for pumpkin pie. It's one of the few foods I like on Thanksgiving. But it has a time and a place, and that is not everywhere. And it's like, this is an epidemic. This weird pumpkin epidemic must be bad for the environment in some way. Can't PETA call us out? It's so weird. <laughs> I don't I don't think it, it the, the elements of the pumpkin spice blend, I, I think, are all PETA-friendly. It's like, you know, uh, ginger and cinnamon and nutmeg and all that kind sure. of stuff. <laughs> um, I am not interested in that flavor profile on a chicken wing. Now, I, I, I guess it's possible you can I can kind of I'm imagining it as kind of like a dry rub. Right. Sure. Where it's where, where it's like a, um, a grilled wing or, or maybe, you know, baked um, and then. The rub is kind of applied at the at the very end, and you're you're you've got a, a dusting on your fingers, and you can lick your fingers. And if you're drinking like one of the pumpkin spice uh, ales that are out there right now, maybe it's like a complimentary experience. Maybe. I like the idea of drinking a pumpkin flavored beer, uh, which I honestly don't have that big a problem with, and then eating you know delicious jerk wings. That 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 works better for me. I guess so. I don't know. This is too much. You don't like you don't want pumpkin flavor in your beer either. No, I I don't like a I don't like an altitude beer, but I don't like beer that much, so I'm not a good person to ask. I just think this is gross. Okay. Give me like regular wings and and blue cheese and side of celery, and I'm good to go. I'm I'm right there with you. I, I don't mind innovation in the wing space. I I like the idea of an elevated wing. Um, I'm not sure that pumpkin spice is really elevating it. It feels like a little you know. A little opportunistic for my taste. Agreed. But I, I do think there could be some like, like harissa wings. You know, taking Ooh. a little more exotic uh, flavorings from other parts of the world and applying them to the, to the delicious humble chicken wing. There's a lot of places you can go with that. I believe. I mean, the sriracha, shira- uh, <laughs> sriracha. That's the word. Sure. I've had it ten million times. Sriracha wings are damn good. Never had it, but I believe you. I believe that. I like anything like sriracha I mean, wings is like sriracha sweet, and mayo, hot chili right? sauce. Yeah, I like that kind of thing. Sure, but this is just too much. Right. The pumpkin, the pumpkin sitch is I don't know who's who are we even appealing to anymore with this. I, I I don't I never subscribe to it. I don't drink the pumpkin spice latte. I don't uh, you know eat any any pumpkin goods. The only thing I'm interested in that comes around right now is salted pumpkin seeds. Uh, those are pretty damn good. Nice. That does sound good. I like it. All right, House. That's all I got for you. I think that's plenty. We, we captured. We, we we agree that vodka needs to be as cold as possible. Try filtering we're, it through your Brita. <laughs> yeah. We both love avocados, and we're not uh, touching any anything with pumpkin spice on it. Yeah. Stay away. Keep pumpkin away from me. Boom. Talk to you next You've week, buddy. It. Thanks for having me, as Thanks, always. Thanks, Juliet. All right, my hungry homies, there we go. Another spectacular house of carbs in the books. Big thanks to everybody for the pasta bar suggestions. It does seem like there are uh, possibilities out there. In fact, we got some suggestions 
from some taste buds on on potential names like Hey Simmons and House. Why don't you open up your own pasta bar? One of the names that I saw and enjoyed: Endless Pastabilities. Pretty good, hungry homies. That's pretty good. Keep hitting us. I mean, uh, we are exactly in pasta bar season. If you didn't get a chance on the Instagram or on Twitter to hit us up, please feel free to do so. Back next week, it is Halloween. We're going to talk a little bit about Halloween candy. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the adult version of Halloween and the correct way to do it. Until then, my hungry homies, let's stay hungry out there. (laughs) 